John in the book of Mark. Um, we'll, be in, we'll be finishing off Mark chapter 7, so we'll be in verses 24 to 37. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. We'll be finishing off this, this chapter. And we're going to, um, I think, uh, not next week, the following week, we'll, we'll just go into chapter 8. And then we're going to take a little bit of a break from Mark as we do some, uh, some other passages during the other studies during the summer. So we'll be just entering into chapter 8 here in a couple of weeks. But this morning we'll be finishing off Mark chapter 7. So as you're turning there, let's um, just remind ourselves of some of the context of what has, what has been going on so far in this chapter. Because these, these verses come off or, or come as a result of what was happening in the previous section of the chapter. So you'll remember back in the opening portions of chapter 7... Um, Jesus is back in Galilee. Um, and some Pharisees and scribes that have come up from Jerusalem now confront them, confront him, and they start questioning him why his disciples aren't, why they didn't follow the traditions of the elders and wash their hands before eating a little bit of bread. He gets in, and we, we kind of discuss this concern over what these traditions were um, and what they were doing. Christ calls them out as hypocrites, and he tells them, hey, you're worrying about this minor thing when you're promoting a violation of a stronger commandment over a minor tradition. And you've, you've skewed these things, you've, you've twisted them, and you're going to come after us for, these, for this minor tradition that's not even scriptural. And he gives, uh, and then he goes on, and he teaches the the disciples, kind of explaining it's not about um, you don't become defiled because of the things you touch. It's from within. Defilement comes from within, and we had that reminder that it's a heart issue. And Christ gets to the heart of the matter because it's the heart. Out of the heart come these things. So this is kind of leading up to where we are. And, and verse 23 kind of ends there. And then as we get into verse 24, we see that having come off this confrontation with the Pharisees over these traditions and customs, Jesus withdraws from Galilee and goes into Gentile regions. He, he withdraws himself from ministering to the Jews to minister to Gentiles. So if you're looking for a big idea out of this message, it's, and it should be listed at the top of your outline there, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, but the Savior of the Gentiles. Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, but the Savior of the Gentiles. Now as we start, let's get into our passage here. Let's look at these first, this first section, verses 24 to 30. Now, from there, from Galilee, where he had this, probably Capernaum, where he had this confrontation with the Pharisees, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. 
and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. In verses 24 to 30, we see a mother's plea. In this passage, we're going to see Jesus ministering to Gentiles away from the Jews. And this first interaction here, we see a mother's plea, a mother's plea, verses 24 to 30. As I had mentioned, as we've seen here, Jesus was withdrawn from Galilee towards the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, if you were to look at a map, uh, you'll see that it's further north, and these are both cities off the coast of the Mediterranean, Tyre being a little bit closer to Galilee and Sidon being a little further up. Um, we're not told that, they are specifically, that he specifically goes to either of these cities. He may have been just in outlying areas in the region of the area. He was withdrawing a little bit from the, from the Jews and spending time here. He was likely on planning on being away from Galilee. He didn't, you notice he entered the house in a Gentile region. He was planning on being away for a while. And after confronting these Pharisees over this, this traditions, he had seemed that he intended to stay in Gentile area for a while and in a Gentile home, possibly. It says he entered into a house. Now, we don't know anything about whose house this is. It may have been a home of a friend or a Gentile stranger, possibly even a Jewish friend who, was, who lived in the area. We don't know. But... Part of this also seems that he wanted to have time, Jesus wanted to have time to have intentional and direct instruction for the 12. He wanted to be in a place with some level of anonymity where he could be alone to, to some extent so he could spend time with the 12. Somewhere he wasn't well known so he could give, begin to instruct them as he begins to draw closer, ever closer to the cross. And need, they need to start understanding more things. Now, based what we see here in verse 24, and as, if we jump down to verse 31 quickly, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the city of Galilee. He, Jesus and the 12 may have been out of Galilee for a month or more. We don't have a specific time frame, but he was out of Galilee for a good while. But as we typically see, as we see most times, Jesus isn't able to really find the anonymity, that the, the time to be alone that he was looking for in the region of Tyre. He was likely recognized pretty early on. Remember back to chapter 3, where Mark notes that differing regions that the people came from forming a great multitude to come to see Jesus. Mark 3, verses 7 and 9, Jesus withdrew, to, withdrew with his disciples to the sea, being the Lake of Galilee, 
and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udemia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him. So in, in those verses, we see that he was already drawing people from Galilee, from southern Judea, from Jerusalem specifically, from Udemia, further south of Judea, from an eastern side of the Jordan River, and even from north and in, in, from the Tyre of Sidon. So even though he withdrew from Galilee and went north to this Gentile region, he was still recognized. Once he was recognized, people began to gather. And Mark notes specifically one woman that came to, her, came to him as soon as she heard Jesus was in the area. The New King James doesn't uh, reflect it, but Mark's favorite word is there. She came immediately upon hearing it. Upon hearing he was there. She, as soon as she heard that Jesus was in the area, she went to see Jesus. Mark gives us the reason of her coming to see Jesus before, she, before he gives us any information about her. She comes because her daughter has an unclean spirit and she's seeking help. Now Mark tells us that this lady comes and falls at Jesus' feet. This wasn't necessarily an act of worship, but this may have been a bit more of a cultural act of showing deep respect for him and the grief that she feels over the situation she's coming about. Mark tells us that her daughter was possessed by a demon, that she had an unclean spirit. Mark uses the phrase here, young daughter, uh, the ESV reads, little daughter. This is the same word that he used in chapter 5, verse 23, with Jairus asking for Jesus to come and heal his little daughter. It's the same word. Now, this, like when we talked back in chapter 5, this is a term of endearment for a younger daughter. So she could have been anywhere from marrying age to a five or six, maybe seven. So, but it can also be used as a term of endearment, showing how dear she was. Now Mark starts giving us information about the woman specifically. And he's highlighting things about her. About her. We know he is, Jesus is in a Gentile region, but now he's highlighting that Jesus is actually ministering to and working with a Gentile. We are told that she is a Greek. Now, the idea here is simply that she is not Jewish and a Greek speaker because he further tells us that, he, that she is a Syrophoenician by birth. That is her nationality. Now, Matthew is the only uh, gospel that has a parallel account of this. Matthew refers to her as a Canaanite woman, which would be more the Jewish uh, respect to, uh, the Jewish way to refer to her. She was from the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was also referred to as Phoenicia. 
But during this time, this area was part of the larger political district of Syria. So it belonged to Syria, but she was Phoenician by birth. So this was her area. This was her uh, county and district. So that's why Mark refers to her as a Syrophoenician. She belongs there. That is where she is from. Now Mark abbreviates this encounter a little bit from Matthew. Um, But we see that she is persistent in her petition of Jesus. In uh, Matthew 15, 21 to 28 is the only other gospel account of this. Matthew actually tells us that she comes three times and brings the request three times, but Mark only gives us two. And Matthew, it's interesting, Matthew shows that she comes and calls Jesus, says, Jesus, son of David. She uses a Messianic, a Jewish term for him. Jesus, Jesus makes a comment that we'll, we'll, we'll explain a little bit further later on. In Matthew, he, he reports as saying, I am sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The second time in Matthew is a little more reflected to what Mark has here. She doesn't call him son of David. She drops the messianic title because she's, he's not her Messiah. She's Gentile. She's not Jewish. The first part of dialogue that Mark gives us is Jesus' reply. He doesn't give us what her request, well, he gives us what the request is, but no dialogue from her. The first dialogue we see is just Jesus' reply, which in Matthew's account is the second reply. And his comment to her is, let the children be fed first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. This statement sounds harsh to our ears. But we need to understand a few things. First, this, was, this comment was likely as much to the disciples as it was to her. And though this seems harsh to our ears, Jesus is actually making a proverbial statement that indicates his primary target, the children of Israel. That signaler, signaler word, that signaling word, excuse me, is the word first, which here is actually an adverb describing or modifying be filled. The children should be fed or filled first or firstly. Now, as I mentioned, Matthew includes a previous interaction where she uses that messianic term, son of David, and he replies that he is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The reference to the children here is referring, excuse me, refers to Israel being the children or special people of God. Jesus says that it's not good, good being fitting or proper. It's not good or proper to give bread, the meal that's supposed to go to the children and give it to the little dogs. His primary task is to 
feed or to fill the children, to minister to the children of Israel. But what's going on with this term, little dogs? Is Jesus being cruel and dismissive of this woman just because she's not Jewish? No, that's not, that's not what's happening. While it was very common for the Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs, as a term of abuse and contempt, that's not what Jesus is doing. The scripture does use the term dogs as a term of contempt or reproach in varying passages, Old and New Testament, partly because most dogs were not kept as pets in the Middle Eastern culture. They were strays, scavengers, eating the refuse that had been thrown into streets. Jesus uses a different term. I looked at some of the words that are, that are used in uh, New Testament passages in, as dogs being used in a term of contempt to this word that is a different word entirely. Jesus uses the term little dogs. And interestingly, the New King James is the only one to translate it little dogs. Everybody else translated as dogs. But the idea of the word is that, that little dogs, it's more, that's more the meaning and conveys the intended sense that these are domesticated dogs or pets. Now, Jesus isn't referring to her as a pet. He's not referring to Gentiles as pet or second class. He's actually testing her faith and hope that the, that the time of the Gentiles was coming. He was first let the children be fed. Therefore, he's encouraging her to actually bring her request one more time. He's testing her faith a little bit, giving her some hope that the time of the Gentiles was coming. And you'll notice that the mother, that she's not offended by what Christ says. She was quick-witted and intelligent to understand what he said and responds in kind. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Now, first, uh, Lord there. That is the typical word used as that translated Lord through all of the New Testament, often used in place of uh, Jehovah or Yahweh from the Old Testament. But that is not the intention here. It, that same word can be used as a term of respect, more like saying, sir. So a, a more modern translation, ESV, CSB, might actually translate that, yes, sir. That's more the, the way she's using that word. Her response here shows that she understood and accepted her position as not being part of Israel with humility. She still demonstrated faith in Jesus' generosity and kindness to help her daughter, even though neither of them were of Israel. Her statement refers to common events at the table. Crumbs dropping from the table that are quickly eaten by the family dog. 
You know, it could also be reference to children stereotypically dropping food to the dog. Here, take this broccoli, I don't want it. Oops, I dropped it. Or if you're my Rebecca just going, oh, I'm done eating. There you go. Jesus recognizes her faith and responds for what it is and grants her request. Jesus tells her to go home. The demon has left her daughter. Jesus just exercised the demon without going to the woman's home, seeing or laying hands on her daughter. This is the only case in Mark that Jesus performs a cure at a distance. Mark includes that the mother then leaves Jesus to return to her daughter. Now, this can also be seen as an act of faith on her because she's taking what Jesus said to be true. The last verse of this section just shows that shows the validity of what had happened. She returns home and she finds her daughter lying peacefully on her bed, free from the torment of the demon, just as Jesus had said. This will bring us down into verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should not tell anyone. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He, be, he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So in these verses, we see Jesus interacting again with a, a specific uh, Gentile man. So we see a deaf man healed a deaf man healed, verses 31 to 37. This section is unique to Mark. There is no parallel to this. Although in Matthew 15, verses 30 and 31, is very similar to the ending of this section, but not a direct uh, parallel, but they're very similar, that, that it might be happening around the same time. Now, Mark gives us some more of Jesus' movements here. Uh, and if you're reading this, this, as I was reading this verse, I'm going, what is he doing? What is this route that he's taking? But it seems that he leaves the area of Tyre and heads further north to Sidon. And then it's not real clear what happens next. Jesus and the disciples could have gone uh, through Tyre's region, back down south again, then east towards Caesarea Philippi, then south down through the region of the Decapolis. Or they work their way east 
from Sidon, going through some of the hilly terrain, well north of Caesarea Philippi before heading south through the Decapolis. Either way, this is why it, it seems like they were probably gone for a month, maybe more, of a lot of this travel, this kind of circular route that he's taking. But he's staying out of Galilee. He's staying out of Herod's territory. He's staying out of the area of the Pharisees. He's not receiving a lot of um, confrontation from Philip the Tetrarch or, any, or anyone else over there. He's kind of staying out. He's making sure he's staying out of Israel at the moment. We don't have any record of extended teaching during this time. We don't have record of him going into Tyre and teaching, going to Caesarea Philippi and spending time teaching crowds. So it seems that Jesus wanted to have focused time instructing the 12. This seems to have been a, a walking seminar for them, if you will. We're just going to travel around here and I'm going to work, talk with you and work with you so you start understanding things. Now, it seems that they've made their way down to the Decapolis, which is a region of 10 cities. Um, and it seems that after being in the Decapolis area, Jesus was again recognized. The last time we talked about the Decapolis in Mark was also in chapter 5. Here, Jesus had, had healed the demoniac that had lived among the tombs. And he had left that man as a witness of what he had done. The testimony of this man must have spread, and it's possible that Jesus made his way back to the same area that he had healed the man, and he was recognized by the people there. We see again that crowds found Jesus, and some people brought this deaf man to him. We see that only through the concern of this man's friends did he ever meet Jesus and find healing. We are told that the man is deaf and has a speech impediment, which was likely caused by his deafness. The word that's used here for impediment in his speech means difficulty speaking. We don't really know what it was, but it seems to have been it tied to his deafness. He's not called a mute, so we don't. Th nobody really thinks that he was, to really call him a mute doesn't seem to fit the language here. He just has a difficulty speaking. The man's friends or family that brought him to Jesus asked Jesus to lay hands on him. They seem to have heard that Jesus would have do this commonly, that he would put a hand on whoever he was healing as part of his ministry. And they seem to have assumed that Jesus needed to lay hands on someone to heal them. But as we just saw in the previous, he could easily do it at a distance. Now, Jesus does something a little unique here. He takes the man and he has a private encounter with him. He takes the man aside, away from the crowd, by himself. That's just Jesus interacting with the man. Jesus was creating a personal relationship 
with him. He needed the man to know that Jesus' personal interest in him and what his kind intentions were. He also may have been trying to avoid a widespread healing ministry at the moment. He didn't want to get something like this started. That's not what he was doing at the moment. Now, the actions described here in verse 34 can be puzzling. But it seems that Jesus may be using these actions as a kind of sign language to inform the man of what he was about to do. He was working with the man in a unique way, not a stereotyped or rote way, but one tailored to the encounter for this man. He was informing him about why he was engaging him. This was also likely to help stimulate the man's faith that Jesus could do what he was indicating. Jesus putting his fingers in the man's ears likely was to convey that it was going to be something with his deafness, with his ears. Spitting likely on the ground and then touching the man's tongue with his finger, Jesus was directing attention to his mouth and tongue, which Jesus intended to aid. He was telling the man, he was indicating to the man that he had the power to heal him. After Jesus does this, he looks to heaven. Again, Jesus was likely indicating to the man the source of the power of the healing, that it was from God. But this was also typical of Jesus in his prayers to direct his eyes to heaven. Mark adds a note here telling us of Jesus's great and deep sympathy. He looks up to heaven and he sighs. Just a brief note of Jesus's deep sympathy for the man. Jesus then spoke to the man and Mark includes the Aramaic word there, Ephatha. And Mark gives the translation for his Gentile readers, Christ said to him, be opened. The result, again, was immediate, as we typically see with Jesus' healing. There was no delayed reaction. There was no rehab. There was no learning through anything. It was immediate. The man's hearing worked. His tongue was loose, and he was speaking without any stutter, stammer, difficulty, or anything else that would have indicated his impediment. Though we have the word loosed here, this doesn't necessarily mean that the man was tongue-tied. But whatever restraint to his clear speech had been, it had been removed. Now, Jesus' actions, the putting his fingers in the ears and touching the man's tongue, these weren't, these weren't about healing. There was no magic in the actions that he was doing. The healing happened through his personal application of his power through his will. Now, I've, <laughs> I've read this passage before, and I've had thoughts... Why is he sticking his fingers in the guy's ears? Why is he spitting? Why is he touching? What is going on? And I've had thoughts of, was, was this somehow related to him actually healing him, fixing the difficulty? 
No, he was communicating to the man that he healed through his, he was communicating to the man what he was going to do. He healed him through his express command. Jesus, again, as we've seen before in times of, of his healing, he gives instructions to the healed man and his friends that they shouldn't talk about the healing. And this likely included anyone else nearby that witnessed the result or others that had heard of the healing. Jesus didn't want to be known as a Hellenistic or a Greek miracle worker. His true identity could not be properly understood until after his death and resurrection. Now it says Jesus had to repeat this command. He said the more he commanded them shows a repeating because the first time wasn't being obeyed. The more he commanded, the more they told. But the more he told them not to tell people of the healing, the more they talked about it. They were proclaiming it. They were heralding it. One author notes here, the conduct of the multitude is a good example of the way in which men treat Jesus, yielding him all homage, all honor, except obedience. The last verse here shows us the amazement of the crowd. It says that they were astonished. They were, it means to marvel at. They were out of their normal senses having seen and heard of this miracle. Mark modifies astonished with beyond measure. This is, the, this is to be super abounding beyond, over and above. This astonishment was greater than anything they had ever experienced. In this astonishment, the crowd kept exclaiming that Jesus does all things well. Well here stresses that not only what Jesus did was good morally, but also admirable and noble. We also see that they refer to, to more than one miracle. The story of the demoniac the, that had lived among the tombs may play a part here. It seems that that had left a great impression on the people. And this healing, the deaf man, adds to the admirable quality of Jesus' actions. This comment about Jesus making the deaf to hear and the mute speak shows two classes and repeated occurrences of Jesus' action, the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, two types of healings that are being referred to. And it seems that there was a recurrence of these things. It's also a bit of a generalizing statement, but it's true. These people were amazed by Jesus' actions, but they don't yet want to respond in a general faith. They are amazed at Jesus' actions, but don't become disciples. In verses 24 to 30, Jesus, in his mercy and in response to the woman's faith, though she was a Gentile, 
healed her daughter from the afflictions of Satan's minions. This exorcism is different from the others shown in Mark. Others have been showing Jesus' power and authority over the demon through the confrontation. But here, Jesus never sees the possessed girl, let alone speaks directly to the demon afflicting her. It may be that since this, since that the one asking for the help and needing the help where Gentiles played a part in this unique encounter, but we see here Jesus shows his power and authority over the spirit realm doesn't require his physical presence. Because he is God, he has the absolute authority over the spirit realm. In verses 31 to 37, Jesus is seen again to show mercy to this man, likely another Gentile. Jesus' healing here creates a greater response from the crowd, and they begin to, to tell others of Jesus' good and admirable works, yet they don't become disciples. Excitement about Jesus is not genuine faith. It certainly isn't saving faith. It takes a direct and personal element of faith. Excitement about Jesus is not genuine faith. Jesus' healing of the deaf and mute was expected. But that's not the strangeness of the occurrence. It was expected from the Messiah but it was expected to be happening among the Jews. For these miracles that we looked at today to be done by the Jewish Messiah in Gentile regions for the good of Gentiles was unexpected and rather shocking. But at this time, Jesus is beginning to draw closer to the cross and the establishment of the church and the opening of salvation to the Gentiles was coming. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminders that we have here in this passage. Seeing Christ's power and authority demonstrated once again to recognize his mercy and grace. Though he was the Jewish Messiah and sent to the house of Israel to proclaim the kingdom of God, he was re rejected by his own. John writes that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Because of that, salvation was opened to the Gentiles. And Father, we are thankful for this. We are grateful that you have the grace and the mercy to bring us, to allow us to come unto salvation. Help us to be committed and genuine disciples, seeking to proclaim the things that we need to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The forgiveness of sins that we can have through Christ. 
and that we are able to come to you to have eternal life and to spend eternity with you. That we are not, that we have the ability to, through Christ, not to stand condemned any longer. Help us to recognize these truths. Help us to live with these truths and to proclaim them. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.